Interoptic makes high-quality optical modules you can rely on. Plus, they are far cheaper than OEM optics. Save big money without compromising quality. Visit interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers, and we thank Interoptic for being an excellent sponsor. Interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Thousand Eyes. Check out their latest internet performance report, COVID-19 Impact Edition. You can find it at thousandeyes.com slash research slash internet dash performance. Welcome to Packet Bushers Heavy Networking. My goodness, we have a lot of people on the show today, folks from all over the world for a community roundtable episode. A whole bunch of folks brought a whole bunch of topics, and we're going to go round the table and chat about them. And uh, let's have everybody very briefly introduce yourselves. We just want uh, your name, a title, where you work, if you care to disclose those things, a Twitter handle or something like that, if you like, starting with Chris Cummings. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Chris Cummings. I am a network engineer uh, for a mining company. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Cranky Netman because, you know, that's the persona I want to get across is that I'm cranky. <laughs> With the bald head and the big beard. You, I love it, baby. That, uh, that, that's perfect. That's uh, Chris Cummings. Next up, Toby Metz. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Toby Metz. I am from Germany. I currently work as a systems engineer for Cisco Systems, so on the dark side. <laughs> and my Twitter handle is net underscore Toby. Nice to have you, Toby. Uh, Justin. Justin Sigurdsson. I'm a lead network engineer for a, I believe it's called UCAS company now, um, hmm. which is not a term I particularly enjoy. And uh, Oliver. All right, yep, yeah. Ollie Elliott. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Ollie Elliott, but I pretty much never post. I'm a follower. But um, oh, I got to call you Ollie now, yeah? Yeah, you call me, <laughs> call me Ollie. Let's be informal. Um, I work for Oracle. Until recently, I worked for a university, so just made a jump mid pandemic. Perfect timing. Lovely. And then Nash. Hi, my name is Nash King. I'm a network specialist at basically a managed services provider and value-added reseller with a focus on like Cisco and Meraki products. I know Meraki. My Twitter handle is the nightmare. It is at Gamma Capricorni. <laughs> <laughs> I thought at first your Twitter handle was the nightmare. I'm like, oh, wow, that's for reals. Oh, ga Gamma Capricorni. It is a nightmare. Got it. Okay, everyone, thank you for joining us. And if you're wondering how we assembled this group of people together, that is via the Packet Pushers Slack channel. We, yes, we have one of those, if you didn't know, packetpushers.net slash slack join. We don't care who you work for, what you do. There's some rules of engagement on that page and jump on in and join us if you'd like. And you can meet all of these nice people that are here. First topic of the day in our roundtable discussion is brought to us by Chris. Chris, you say why eVPN VXLAN is useful, even for the world's smallest data center. You want to expand on that, Chris, what your thoughts are there? Sure thing. So, uh, the topic there came from a recent deployment I did at my day job, uh, where we actually deployed EVPN VXLAN in what I consider a very, very tiny data center. Um, you know, handful of racks, a uh, handful of hypervisors, very small. Um, was, the company I work for is not, you know, incredibly large from a digital standpoint, at least on-prem. So I wanted to kind of talk about what I saw as the reasons you may want to do that. And then, of course, also the reasons you may not want to do that as, you know, EVPN VXLAN, to quote Ivan, is when, when you're looking for an overlay, Ivan says it's 2020, VXLAN, EVPN's all the rage. So that's why you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> because Ivan, you may be talking about Ivan Pepelnyak at, uh, over at ISPSpace.net. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yep. So, you know, that, there you go. You can do it because it's cool and there's lots of buzzwords. But, I mean, a few things that I ran into um, in the design process that really stuck out as a good reason uh, to do EVPN, VXLAN. Uh, number one is, you know, ESI lag is kind of, in my opinion, the killer feature which allows you to get rid of, you know, MLAG or MC lag and move to an open standard as, you know, EVPN is RFC 7432, I believe, uh, which is an open standard. So it kind of allows you to get away from that, you know, individual vendor proprietary way of doing redundancy at L2 between hosts and not having to have spanning tree. Um, I'll get to the drawbacks of that, of course, in a bit. <laughs> but uh, the other thing, too, is, you know, I, I'm not going to go too deep into, like, the technical 
background of EVP and VXLAN because I think you guys have covered that well yeah, in we depth on it, sure, yeah. once or twice. Yeah. And I may or may not have used most of those to, you know, help me. But, um, you know, it's really scalable. Uh, you can definitely, if you need to scale out L2 or multi-tenancy, uh, it's very scalable for a data center. So even if you are a small DC and you're wanting to grow, um, you know, once you have your EVPN uh, fabric built, you can definitely scale out horizontally, you know, simple leaf spine, cloth, that whole thing. Um, also, you know, in theory, interoperability is definitely a big part of it. Um, why not use MC lag? Well, MC lag only works between, you know, two junipers or two cumulus switches, yeah. things like that. So you have, at least in theory, the option to do what they call ESI lag, or Juniper calls it that specifically, but ESI lag between, you know, two leaf switches, even if they're different vendors, at least in theory. So that opens you up, um, especially from an expansion standpoint in the future, if you need to grow out, but maybe, you know, you got to go to a different vendor for price or what have you. Now, you say even the world's smallest data center. So one of the, you know, to me, the, the, the fundamentals of eVPN here is I can safely extend L2 all over the data center. So is that, was that, I assume, a core design requirement you had? Absolutely. So, you know, with VMware, the main idea is typically to extend L2 so that you can vMotion all over the place, right? Um, without having to readdress things, you can have your mobility of your IP addresses. Um, there's just a lot of reasons that what I would consider poorly designed things need a consistent big yellow cable in the data center, to use Yvonne's uh, term again. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there, there's just a lot of applications, and especially, you know, I work for an older company, so we have lots of legacy applications, and guess what? They all love being on the same subnet. They don't like changing their IPs. You know, systems teams sometimes might be allergic to DNS. You know, there's a lot of reasons that you may want to be able to span L2 inside the data center. Additionally... Now, it may not be a great idea, but you do have the option, and in my opinion, if you're going to span L2 outside of the data center, you do have the option to do that um, to another data center uh, for disaster recovery. Again, lots of caveats there, as with all things L2. However, if you're going to do it, in my opinion, it's one of the cleaner ways to do it, and you definitely have more visibility into it than a traditional you know, spanning tree style. It might cause a problem, though, because it provides you a method to span layer two over multiple data centers when you don't really want to do that. Whereas yeah. a, a good excuse not to in the past has been, it's not safe. Whereas now, if you make it a bit safe, that's a bit dangerous. Yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, I think spanning L2 outside of data centers is typically not a good design decision, but I think it's a decision that gets made outside of what's considered a good design, I think. you know. Why don't... I mean, just because you can doesn't change the design constraint of not wanting to extend L2 across your two different failure domains, at least physical failure domains. It, it's mm -hmm. gotten easier to do it, but I don't mean, I don't think a network architect would necessarily be tempted by that. Or, or, or are we saying, Ollie, it's just the, the same application people, you know, forcing us into it? Yes, yeah, so I think we need to rely on having a good excuse not to. So we need to prove the negative. Yeah, well, I think the point. best excuse would still be the WAN link. Uh, even if you have all those fancy solutions, uh, if you have a bad WAN link between the data centers, uh, <laughs> and it's not really disaster recovery, but more like um, having two data centers and maybe want to move some stuff around, that that's always a constraint you can bring to the table for those discussions. Yeah. Depends and you also run into the traffic. Got. Yeah, it depends on how much bandwidth you've got on the DCI. Yeah. So a lot of people don't buy enough bandwidth. If you're only buying one gig between the data center, then extending layer two is pretty bad because nothing's going to fix that problem. If you're buying 100 gig between the data centers or 400 gig or 800 gig, then you haven't got two data centers, you've only got one. And so to, to my mind, it's just a question of how you connect them together. And the way that you can get, you know, 400 gig or 800 gig between data centers is if you're on a reasonably short run, say, 50 to 75 kilometers or even up to three or 400 kilometers, you can get dark fiber and then put your own optical gear on there. And you can light up 20, 24, 48, 100 gig lines across that and then run some MacSec over that on some switches and you're away. It used to be phenomenally expensive to do that. And these days there's a lot of low cost boxes. It's basically just two boxes talking together. And 
Wait a minute, there Sarah, are ways to do that. Are advocating for stretched layer two across several hundred kilometers? Do I need to go on a plane to England? It's really hard, but it's if I only, need to, to, to tell you what's going on, I will. It's only stretched layer two if the two data centers are actually two data centers. If you've got enough bandwidth between them. Um, so if you can imagine, if you could connect your two, you had spine switches in your one data center and spine switches in another, and you actually just connected them at high speed, that's not stretched. That's just one LAN. Why not? Throw bandwidth at the problem. Because I want my two physical. Come on, my unicorn! My two physical data centers to be separate. And if one blows up, I don't want anything possibly to bleed over into the other one. Chris, I want to go back to a, you know, a point you were saying earlier. You, you said the word interoperability in the context of mm-hmm. uh, EVPN several times. Where does that stand? Because that used to be a thing. That used to be a problem where uh, different uh, route types and advertisements were not acknowledged by the other vendor and so on. Where are we at with that? I lost track of it a bit. Yeah, so I mean, I haven't done it um, in production myself. However, just from you know people I've talked to, uh, it definitely is still a thing where interop is not as much of a clean thing as it might sound like. Um, the RFCs are a bit vague on some implementation details, and that does allow vendors to do things the way they want to. And when everybody kind of comes at the same problem from a different angle, you do run into interop problems. I think my my hot take on it is that on the service provider side with EVP and MPLS, I think there's going to be such a greater push for interop than there is on the enterprise side um, that I think we'll see those really get ironed out quicker. And then when the service provider side with EVP and MPLS gets ironed out, well, guess what? Enterprise gets to benefit from that a bit. I think a main problem with that is the implementations of ESI because they, they've been quite staggered in their releases. I believe Juniper was first. Um, yes. Some things like FRR are only very recently releasing their versions. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd trust a multi-vendor ESI, at least not yet. Yeah, it's definitely sure. one of those things that will come with time. Um, the support for this solution is more like add-on to most vendors because everyone has their own uh, solution for a big fancy fabric in the data center. And yeah, okay, we need to um, support EVPN and VXLAN and whatever because uh, maybe the customer has like multi-vendor and needs uh, to connect it. But it, it, to me, it feels like an afterthought in the enterprise for now. Hmm. Do any of you think EVPN VXLAN for campus, not data center, but for campus is interesting? I yeah. do. I think that's really interesting. If you're building out a new campus now, I would strongly consider doing that because it it allows you so much flexibility. Multi-tenancy is the big one. So think about industrial controls and think about the benefits you get from, let's say, L3 VPN or VPN v4 with MPLS. Um, you don't really have a great analog to that in traditional Ethernet switching. EVPN does that. E- EVPN has your ability to do layer two, your ability to do layer three. You can segment all of those in VRFs and EVIs uh, very well. It's very well done. Um, I just wish that my firewall supported EVPN VXLAN because then if I could run EVPN, <laughs> I know that's a horrible statement because firewalls, <laughs> but you know, if I could do all of my inner VR, VRF routing up there uh, without having to, you know, tag it out onto different interfaces or trunks and stuff like that, it just seems really clean. Um, so having that unified control plane is very alluring. And on the campus side, when you have a mixed campus that has IoT or industrial controls, uh, you know, I work in heavy industry, I work in mining, so, you know, precious metals, that obviously involves a lot of really old technology. The digital technology might have some weaknesses, and it may not be designed for availability, so guess where that gets pushed down? It always gets pushed down to the network. Okay, so that that's EVPN VXLAN. Let's uh, let, let's move on to uh, another topic here. Ollie, you brought this one about automation uh, to the fore, and uh, Ollie says overcoming internal processes to get automation going is a topic because sometimes security seems to blindly act against its own interest. Explain yourself, Ollie. What are we getting at here? I can see where they're coming from. So, where I'm, what I'm trying to do is introduce some automation frameworks and software, mainly open source software, to standardized configs, the, the very basic stuff that you start out with, um, standardized ACLs, firewall policy, maybe using it to gain facts from the network, all that stuff. Um, the environment I'm in is, is very secure focus. There's a lot of PCI compliance, et cetera. There's a lot of very rigid rules that people must abide by to maintain that compliance. 
And it seems like it's the easy way for security teams to blindly follow this policy because that is what they do. Whereas what I want to try and convince them is that if I'm able to standardize things and make, say, ACLs standard across the network, no, no snowflake configs, that improves the overall security posture. But getting to the point where I can apply that software and even install that software requires so much process and applications that it's hard to get to that point. That's now, when you say open source tools, can you talk about more specifically what you're using? So things like Ansible for mm -hmm. blasting configs out to lots of devices because it's it's kind of a, a common denominator. It seems to be the de facto standard for network automation right now. Um, but so, for example, getting permission to even run that or to give it access to the devices in such a way that it's useful rather than say you have logins restricted to one at a time. You can use, only use a token once and then you have to wait for it to cycle. That doesn't work with automation at all. You need some kind of machine account that can log into everything all at once. Things like that are, are difficult. So are they getting stuck on the fact that it's open source or just on the you want what access kind of? Um... It's both. So getting an account that can do all those things is a possible security risk angle. If that account is compromised, you have instant access everywhere. Whereas if your token account is compromised, they can only log into one thing at once, for example. So it's a reasonable concern, but you counter that by properly securing that account. So, so what is your, what, what is your, are you just subjected to corporate processes then? Do you have a strategy for action? Are we complaining, Ollie, or do you actually, are you coming to the table with a solution? No, it's mainly complaining. I'm, I'm just using, <laughs> using you guys to vent at. <laughs> We're cheaper no, than have, therapy. It is. I have, I have some solutions. I think perseverance and just following process as no matter how long it takes, filling in the, hour-long forms and waiting for weeks and weeks for someone to tell you no just got to carry on with it but yeah i'm just i'd be interested to hear if anyone has any ideas on how to get these kinds of teams on your side what kind of persuasion techniques no nothing specific but i would just say it's a cultural thing automation uh it, it is not something that one person can go alone and so you have to work on just like any new thing in an organization you absolutely have to work on the relationships with the people who are the choke points on it and it's really hard to get a culture of automation um but once you get folks in there who really want it you know i think once you can you can kind of reach a critical mass and then get going on it but it can be <laughs> i don't know how that helps you i guess with your security team but just in general like that is you know always in my opinion the approach but you said choke point so so find the people to choke is that what you were saying <laughs> Yes. Okay, good, good. I advocate yeah. violence on this part. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, like, what do you have that they want? Like, I work in a small shop who security is a new adventure for us. But still, if I can figure out what they want that I can provide, sometimes things get easier. The hardest challenge I ha I've experienced with security people is communicating effectively. because. Sometimes it's me. I'm not, a, I, you know, in my career, I wasn't a good communicator at different points. I might not have had the time. I might not have had the the project might have been under pressure or I might have been having a bad couple of months where I felt like yelling at people on a regular basis, you know. And the other problem is that a lot of security people also have the same problem. They're not very good communicators. So a lot of the times my suggestion is to Consider if that your security professionals that are nominally your colleagues, whether they are just obstreperous buttheads that should really just be moved out the door, or whether there's a communication gap that you might be able to address if you actually just tried harder and got them to talk a language that you understand. Now, that's not guaranteed. There are a lot of uh, so-called security professionals out there who think, you know, having uh, long hair playing and doing judo and picking locks is a... Uh, career to being different and refusing to communicate effectively with people so it could be but on the other side there's a lot of security professionals who are actually becoming like humans these days Taking a language like you said is totally right because i i think the the language of auditors or security teams is risk and mitigating risk and you know if you can put everything in exactly what their language is then that's your you know your golden ticket so to speak but we shouldn't have to they should meet you halfway sure Sorry. 
No, sure. I agree. That's one place where actually studying insurance can help. I have someone in my life who is IT at an insurance firm, and I've been able to learn a great deal about talking to my security people from listening to him talk about talking to his auditors and just the ways you have to rephrase things for people who know a little bit, but don't know as much as they think, and they don't understand it when you say it in the way that you understand it. It's not just like avoiding jargon. It's a whole like um, mental framework thing. And just learning a little bit of their jargon can get you a far way, get you a long ways, just knowing how to speak their words. This is the sponsored part of the podcast. We were talking about the thing, whatever that was. And now we're going to talk about this other thing from our sponsor. And no need to press skip. It is not going to take me long to help you understand what Interoptic is all about. Interoptic makes high quality optics for your network gear, and they sell them to you far cheaper than the network vendors are going to sell them to you. That's it. That's the main thing you should know about Interoptic. So now is the part where I deal with your objections about buying a non-OEM optic. Cool, I can do that. It is actually easy. Two objections we're going to deal with. Objection one, my networking vendor won't support my switch unless it has their optics in it. You might say, understood, I've been there. Not a problem with Interoptic. They are very familiar with this problem and they manufacture their optics to match or exceed the performance and quality of OEM optics. An optic from Interoptic is going to behave the same in your network device as the OEM optic. Interoptic devices are 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Second objection, you might say, I have had bad luck with off-brand optics, the quality's junk, so it's not worth the risk and the headache. Okay, I know why you might say that, but again, Interoptic is not a off-brand optic. They didn't fall off a truck somewhere. Now they're being sold to you on eBay from username Optics for cheap. Instead, Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver. And most other companies, they do batch testing only. In other words, these guys are a reputable vendor. Interoptic's business model is to sell you an outstanding optic for far less than the OEM optic, and they can do it by not marking up the price of the optics to the crazy amount that OEMs do while still making money. Okay, so hopefully I have dealt with your biggest objections, so this is the part where I tell you what to do next, and that is visit interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers. They've got a podcast plus a full written transcript of that podcast. That's an interview that we did with the Interoptic team a while back, and we get into some of the nitty-gritty detail about optics and how they work and what's going on with them. They're actually very complicated little devices. Again, that's interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers, and if you do decide to ring them up, let them know that you heard about them on our show. And now is the final part, the part you've been waiting for, the part where I shut up about the sponsored bid and go back to us talking about the thing, whatever that was. Justin, I think you've tried to break in about six times here. Did, have you had uh, much <laughs> luck bringing automation into your shop or comments? So a couple of times uh, before I moved over to the business side of things, you know, became architect and talk and started to learn how to talk business. I ran into issues with the security team where one of the policies they had in place was only humans were allowed to log into routers, switches, et cetera, which would kind of negate, you know, negate automation. Um, and so in those instances, you'd have to kind of show the benefit of automation and get your manager, your VP, whatever on your side. Um, and the good way to start with that is, you know, you know, simple scripts running from your machine. So it's, it's a human running the script and using your login. And that shows the benefit so you can have someone push from up high to, um, change the policies on the security side. It's really interesting to have a humans-only policy that, that is certainly a legacy policy. There's other shops I'm aware of that have a no-humans policy. It's got to be a workflow that's been defined by a pipeline, and there's been testing that's been done, and you know, and so on, before that change is going to get pushed. I, admittedly, that's a rarity, and there's some forward-thinking kind of companies with a lot of well-developed processes that get to that point, but that's the other end of the spectrum, is a no-humans policy. You know, If there's no human there with their big meat fingers clobbering the keyboard, then there's less... They idea is there's less likelihood of a mistake being made there's still a human involved it's just not at the same place yeah do they make you edit the memory registers directly as the cli you could maybe view as a form of automation that <laughs> i mean there's there's still change of view involved it's just you have to put your change up put your change together ahead of time and then a human has to enter the commands that's kind of that was their policy to start with 
That's an interesting point, Justin, because one of the things I hear vendors say, which has never really made sense to me, they will say, oh, well, you put in our SDN and our automation. You don't have to do change reviews anymore. You just kind of do the thing because it's all it's all magical and you can trust it. And it's like, what company is just going to let you press a button as opposed to logging in, you know, and not, you know, and, and it, somehow that's supposed to just avoid the change control process. Have any of you experienced that where you've added automation and all of a sudden you don't have to do change reviews anymore? You can get to that point where you have a standard change to use ITIL speak, where you you prove the process enough times with a change review until they get bored of you bringing it to them and say, yes, this one's fine. The automation not- takes care of, of the, the details. And if it goes wrong, you know. Yeah, but that's like saying if I punch you for long enough, you'll get used to the pain and you won't notice it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, that's how the change advisory board yeah. works. I mean, that's the reality. I've lived through that experience, Oliver. But it's also, we should also recognize at the same time how stupid it is. If I made the same change 10 times, then all of a sudden the risk goes away. That's completely invalid. That's like saying if I bought 10 lottery tickets and never won, you know, I'll never win. Now, that's actually quite sane because statistically the risk is very low. But, you know, you just can't, there's no logic in any of that. It's absolutely insane. Like the whole ITIL idea is insane at multiple levels, but that particular one, right there. I well, totally agree. That's where ITIL doesn't really apply to the real world. That this translation is something amiss, but that's how you convince someone who lives in the ITIL world that it's okay. I think the flip side of all this is um, the only other way to uh, get this push button is uh, to review all the business policies that led to um, you wanting to have the push button, but realizing you still have to go through all the manual change processes that are needed. And I think uh, this is a discussion that nobody wants to lead. One way to get away with a human has to enter commands. However, you can still use automation in that world. Uh, that's pretty much the limit of the automation that I've done is mostly config generation. And then, you know, we're not quite comfortable having machines push it out. So we take it and an engineer literally copies and pastes into a router and you can still use automation even in an adverse environment like that. But but if you move to the Ansible model, it's a different thing. You're not manually adding and subtracting configuration sentences or stanzas. You are telling Ansible, here's the state I want that device to reflect, make it so. You know, and in theory, that is a pretty de-risked approach if you're doing it that way, as opposed to what we've been doing for so many years. Yeah, and especially if you have a CI pipeline that will run that change against a test rig, a virtual one or a physical one or both, then you have those tests and you have the results and you can stop at any point if it fails, stop, revert, start again. If they all pass, you're confident that it will pass in production too. You can build a lot of process around it that that further de-risks you know that 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 process, yeah. Um, and I think it's in that mindset that maybe a company gets to that no humans are allowed to touch it you know, sort of a thing because you've got a gold standard that's been defined uh, in those playbooks and and, and can it, and can enforce that. Hmm. Still, I and it sounds like none of you either have run into that issue where, um, yeah, we, you don't need to send these changes by by change change review. They're all you can just go ahead and do your thing. You know, everyone's still having them all uh, be approved. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, uh, Ollie. Another point here: you raised that security was the group standing in your way more than anyone else. Is that true? Yeah, and where I work, there's a there's a big uh, culture of automation. Actually, there's there's a lot of oomph, especially from management, to get this going because they recognise that it's the only way to keep up with the pace of change. But security have to protect the system as a whole, so I can see where they're coming from, and they're resistant because probably because they don't fully understand why it's a good thing, and that's because I haven't explained that very well. So they're they're, resi- they're basically they're they're still telling you no, as opposed to saying. Yes, we understand automation is needed. Let's sit down and figure out how this whole workflow works and make sure that there's a proper security bits in the way. You know, uh, there's all kinds of security things you can add to those pipelines. It's not, there's a whole industry built around it. Yeah, I'm being a little unfair. They definitely have that attitude. They, they, don't, they don't want to stop it because they're personally against it for some reason. They just want it done correctly. And so we'll throw up little roadblocks saying, but what about this? You need to address these, blah, blah, blah. And that's the thing that takes the time. So it's fitting the solution to those requirements. 
So they're just pains in the backside, Ollie, is what we're saying. Yeah, they're just, they're just trying to stop me play with my new toys and make this stuff happen. But it sounds like they're at least giving you kind of something that you can work on instead of just being like, no, we're not going to tell you why. It's just, nah. they're actually saying, you know, what about this specific issue that like sounds like the start of a dialogue or someplace you can use for that? Yeah, there is. There's definitely a dialogue. And it's just, it's lots of Zoom calls and lots of persuading and lots yeah. of smiling and saying, you're right. I will take your advice. You pain in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We're taking a short break for a message from our sponsor, Thousand Eyes, recently acquired by Cisco. With so many people working from home these past few months, you may have asked yourself, hey, how's the internet holding up? We know the internet isn't just one thing. It's a global system of independent and interconnected networks. And as you'll see here in the report, some of these fared well and others, not so much. This report's called the Internet Performance Report COVID-19 Impact Edition. And you can find it at thousandeyes.com slash research slash internet dash performance and get a free copy. And here's a quick preview. Global internet disruption spiked quite a bit, increasing 63% in March. And as it turns out, ISPs were the hardest hit. Beyond ISPs, the report tracks the performance and availability of public cloud networks, CDNs, and DNS across multiple regions. If you're trying to plan what your cloud and IT infrastructure should look like now that we all depend on the internet all the time, check out the report to help you benchmark some of those choices. Go to thousandeyes.com slash research slash internet dash performance. One more time, it's thousandeyes.com slash research slash internet dash performance and download the free report. Thanks, Thousand Eyes, for being a sponsor. And now back to the podcast. Toby, let's move on to your topic here, the uniqueness of network designs and comparing it to house building, trying to get a blog post around this uh, as you're working on. So, okay, man, do, do a brain dump. Tell us what you're thinking about on this topic. Didn't get to the blog post, and this was for Greg. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> but, but it's something I have in my head uh, for a long time. That's why I will write this blog post <laughs> in the near future, because uh, I always run into the issue with people talking. They don't use the word snowflake, but it's still a topic, I think, because everyone thinks they have their unique network. And maybe because we are in, uh, in my private life uh, thinking about building a house I, and it's kind of related and I've certainly read it somewhere before. It's more like, I, I think, yeah, it's like when you build a house, you have so many parts that are the same for everyone. It's uh, the architecture part, it's uh, the hardware, it's maybe even the software and you just combine it in your way. And that makes your house or your network, your special way, but that's not unique in a way. It's maybe 90% like everyone has it. And a uh, little bit on the top, that's, your unique way of dealing with it and maybe some custom application that's run over the network that needs some special tweaks. Uh, and, um, and the issue I have with this is that everyone is like, maybe it's also going a little bit in the um, pets versus cattle uh, discussion, but uh, I, I, I can't figure out why still everybody thinks uh, that they have their own unique pet to care about. I think it's more like house building where you take a lot of uh, proven and known parts and just put them in another form. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I just wrote about this the other day about customization and uniqueness and it's going into a new project I'm working on. And I wrote, and I'll quote, a network is unique in the same way that every car is a one-off. Cars are made of common components like tyres, engineers and windscreens with only limited differences between them. However. Let me qualify this. The combination of corporate leadership, management skills, financial budgets, in-house skills and experience, and the core business activities combine to produce some uniqueness. So everybody has a car, but everybody uses it for a different purpose, right? So the car that you use to take the kids to school or to drive to work or to carry around a, a bunch of Amazon parcels for delivery, those cars are functionally the same, but they may actually vary. And maybe the cars are the same, but the purpose is different. And so uniqueness doesn't just come from the network. Sometimes it also comes from the solution. So I wrote, it is more correct that each network is a unique situation. Every network runs the same protocols, the similar devices with similar APIs, Engineers learn the same knowledge and network operations is not a specialist activity. A network solution is made of common components to solve the same general need of simple connectivity. In the end, only a small percentage of the overall solution can be unique. 
Um, however, let me just express one final point. The concept of your network actually being unique comes from vendor or reseller salespeople who are trying to stroke your ego that you're a special child, <laughs> that you are loved, that your situation is totally unique and only they can possibly help you and you should feel so incredibly, you know, grateful that this person is here to rip you off. I mean, sell you something. Uh, so I, I kind of, you know, the uniqueness idea is a straight up, it's, a, it's what in sales training, it's called positive stroking. When you talk to the customer, you stroke them positively. You make them feel good about themselves. And they'll associate that feeling of goodness with you, with the, with the salesperson. And that puts you in a controlling position in the, in the sales, in the, in the confrontational methodology, right? So the concept of a unique network, as far as I'm concerned, is complete and utter bunk for the same reasons that you just said. When you make a house, you make it out of the same materials as every other house. You use the same size windows because they're mass-produced, right? You can have a custom window, but that's a really dumb idea, you know, and, and you use the same paint, use the same stairs, you know, all that stuff, right? And, but at the end of the day, what you do with the thing is different. So the situational context, and the situational context is usually down to corporate leadership, management skills, what budget you have. But the network itself as a technology, no, not unique. So I guess I agree with you, but I would use a different metaphor or different storytelling to make that happen. Does that make sense? Yep. I have a counterpoint, though. If everyone's network was the same, all of the bugs would be discovered within days. However, you often find unique bugs and critical problems with the network software that mean that your network must be special enough that no one else has found this one yet. I don't know about that. So I mostly deal with Meraki equipment. Please make fun of me now and get it out of the way. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed is that... Um, there's a lot of things that you might think are like one-off bugs for your network. It's just, oh, my firewall does this weird thing where it randomly blocks a website and doesn't record it in the event log to pick something from today. <laughs> That's a problem that if you only have a couple of those firewalls, you're like, oh, this is weird. It must just be me. No, it's a problem that happens for a lot of people. And you just don't see it until you've got, I don't know, 70 or 80 odd firewalls and completely different offices and completely different networks. And you're like, wait a minute. Especially when it's and that gray kind of a failure. It doesn't happen all the time, but you have enough equipment deployed, then you, it, it starts to percolate up and you see it. Yeah. A huge part of why I know so much about Meraki is because I have Meraki equipment deployed at dozens and dozens of customers and they may not have huge networks. But they have very, there's a couple of different like kind of standard setups and they have different ISPs and different non-Meraki equipment that they attach to that's terrible. And so I get this wide swath of opportunities to go, huh, that's a repeating pattern. <laughs> and other people don't get that. So you yes. might think that you would discover all the bugs and that you might find bugs that are just unique to your environment, but not quite and the other thing too is when you ring up the tech guy and say i've got a bug and they go like oh i've never heard of that before and they actually just say that in <laughs> they just say that instinctively <laughs> right they're not and they may even be telling the truth they're not deliberately lying they just might be but you might think oh well it must be a unique bug it's probably not chances are that 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 bug's been reported well I actually have a theory that most customers don't report bugs because we've been taught not to bother because they're so common that we don't even bother. And quite honestly, dealing with vendor tax is so bad these days that you just gave up and you just sort of live with the pain for a few weeks and then upgrade to the next version of code. Not positively stroking, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you, man. I feel you. <laughs> Ollie, I want to go back to what you were saying, you know, because you were basically making the argument that we all have, we must have unique networks or else, you know, we'd all run into the same problems at the same time kind of thing. Well, I'm, I'm going to put a twist on uniqueness in yet a different way, which is, I think it's the uniqueness of individual engineers, our backgrounds, experience, our training, the things we're most comfortable with that governs in most cases, how a network is put together. We inherit whatever the person before us built. You know, if I step into a network that Nash built, I'm going to get what she put together, you know, et cetera. And it all kind of goes from there because we aren't trained 
in a like a modular way. Hey, if you you're, let's say you're in a multi-story building and you've got uh, a fiber backbone with fan outs on each floor, this is how you should lay out the routing and switching architecture for layer two and layer three with a Wi-Fi you know, on top of it. We're not taught that. We're taught connect everybody together. Good luck. And you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox, and you might pick a hammer, and you might pick a screwdriver, and you might pick a lot of things, all depending on what is your favorite way to go after things. I've tackled lots of problems that could have been solved maybe six different ways, but because I had a pattern and a way I like to build things, that's the way I built it. And it was my own chosen building block that I trusted and I understood and I know it worked well and had, you know, good scaling characteristic, let's say, or a meta particular budget criteria, perhaps. Um, because we're not trained like, like a civil engineer might be trained, this is exactly how you build a road and it's got to meet these criteria. We're not we don't build things that way in networking. It's kind of a, it's almost art. You know, we kind of come in and do our thing and put our own unique stamp on it. And that's where the uniqueness comes from, which I think sucks for automation. It drives the automation vendors crazy. How do you automate a network when all the unique snowflakes are us? Not, you know, the networks we, we make or perhaps have unique snowflake attributes because of us as unique snowflake humans. Um, but if we built according to a spec, like if we all had a cookbook that we opened up the same cookbook and read the right recipe to solve this particular kind of problem, this is a book I want to write someday, then um, <laughs> we'd all be building networks that are basically the same and automation would become a predictable set of endpoints to be automating against uh, a standard that you could refer to and it would get a whole lot easier. But Ethan, do you have the nuke to erased all current networks to start anew because otherwise uh, i think this will be like a very big undertaking well that's the problem isn't it because <laughs> right w w most all of us which of us have ever built a greenfield network maybe a few of us have had that opportunity i got to do it once uh in my career uh where it was truly greenfield but most of it's you know you walk in the door you i inherited it uh whatever it was put on the fire hat and spend the next year year and a half working out you know putting out the biggest baddest fires and trying to get the thing stable and predictable and kind of going from there so yeah i i know what you're saying toby i don't have a good answer for that i'm speaking from a world of idealism look at ipv6 for a good example of that right it's been around for so long and it's still not you know replaced everything like we've been told i thought we would. said no swearing on the podcast man What's oh that? sorry oh man. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't have ipv6 buds people on here <laughs> so i've heard your idea expressed toby as uh networking is a solved problem is the way i've heard it said and i've actually even said it myself that way i don't know if i agree with my past self by saying that but I, th I think that's kind of the idea you may be expressing there a bit, which is, you know, there's, you're not solving unique things as much in networking. You're just approaching them uniquely, perhaps based off of organizational things or just personal preference. Ultimately, we're dealing with applications that need to communicate with each other. And those applications can do really weird and strange things. And whichever applications you happen to be supporting, you adapt your network to that environment. Oh yeah, I've especially on the industrial control side or legacy enterprise apps. Like, there's all sorts of weird stuff, like devices that don't understand IP but still can use default gateways. You know, if you can't have a default gateway IP, you just put in the MAC address. I've I've run into that firsthand. That's actually really important. What what you just said, Ollie, because you just reminded me of this fairly common situation where a bunch of printers that were out there lived on a particular VLAN. We were paving over the network with a brand new uh, layer three architecture. Only the layer three lines actually ended up being layer two trunks that were mostly layer three routed. But this one VLAN had for the printers had to span up because no one knew how to fix the printers, and so you end up with this horrible one-off exception to the beautiful layer. Three design that was there with this one l2 stretched up across that link because of a weird basically what it boiled down to was a weird application requirement it wasn't really no one knew how to deal with the printers or wanted to deal with the printers i guess would be a better way to put it but 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 that was it how many things have we all had to put in place because some constraint was put on us you've got to support this turd of an application in this particular way um, and so therefore the designs that we'd love to pull from a recipe in the cookbook means we got to modify the recipe pretty significantly. Yeah. yeah that's, I, that's one thing EVPN goes to solve actually, because it allows you to 
account for those weird things in a mm-hmm. nicer way. So maybe that's the ultimate answer. We're done now with oh. eVPN. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And that's one of the one of the things, back to the topic of eVPN campus versus data center, that's really alluring. So like one of our sites, you know, we don't have uh, a controller based wireless system and for a lot of reasons it's very entrenched and so one thing that would sure be handy would be take that problem space of ip mobility from wireless and instead of using controllers just shove it down bury it deep and put it into evpn you know it actually would maybe it's not the right way to do it but it would work around you know some constraints we don't have all the answers do we this is a good complaint session i'm enjoying this we're we're getting a lot of things (laughs) off our chest here all right, I got another topic to bring up. This is, comes from my friend Dana. Dana works over at, uh, at Blue Cat Networks. She's a good community member here, and she asks the following of this group. I would love to hear, she says, about what everybody's teams have changed or figured out since work from home upended a lot of things. So so, so basically, how has work from home changed, changed our networks? Any successes, new projects that you've had to deal with because of work from home, real actual tales, any stories that you've got to tell? Anybody? You know how much fun it is when uh, your primary ISP goes down and your secondary ISP doesn't come up and you're trying to work where you can get to the office, but the person who's actually allowed to touch the routing can't get to the office. Uh, you've, you get to learn a lot about communicating at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to learn a lot about um, what I like to call pits of shame things that were fine when you're there and you can just kind of quickly like nudge it along and fix it. Uh, But when you're not there, it has more time to snowball very dramatically at four o'clock in the morning. Would we more formally call pits of shame technical debt? (laughs) Yes, but I feel that doesn't ascribe enough guilt and bad feelings (laughs) as in I, I feel bad about them, even though they're not my fault. Would another way to be uh, this temporary thing I put in became permanent? Is that another good way to do a pit of shame? Pit of shame's a nice analogy because you can fall in it <laughs> while, while looking <laughs> elsewhere. You're, yeah. you're walking along doing your, ooh, this is a nice thing. Ah, I'm in a pit of shame. So, so Nash, is this so? What we're saying is support has become weirdly challenging for you because depending on what's broken, you're not physically in the office anymore, or, or you know. So it's, it's um, getting tougher and tougher to actually support things depending on what breaks. It actually depends. So if it's a client, we're already used to working remotely. Um, so I can do just about anything at a client, and it's fine. Now our own gear, which is a little bit um, the shoemaker's children have no shoes. Uh-huh. Um, that's different because we're used to being able to just go, oh no, I'll just console in and it'll be fine. No, I live 10 minutes from the office and it's not fine. It always falls to the closest to the office. That's my situation. I should never have told them where I live. <laughs> <laughs> always live furthest away from the office. Or at least further than the nearest person. It's the old story, how fast you have to be to survive the zombie apocalypse, just faster than the last person. Yeah, I used to live in Alaska, so it was a bear, not zombies, but the same principle applies. (laughs) I have the opposite problem where I'm the only real network engineer in the office, but I'm also two hours away. So (laughs) sometimes I can get the IT person to help, but most of the time I have to go down. Hmm. I would say operationally for me, really, the main thing that's changed is that my SSH sessions are now a few hops away versus before. Cause you know, when you think about networking, it's all remote. Like you don't usually console into a device or whatever, but from a people standpoint, obviously it's changed quite a bit. Um, Cause I sit right next to our, you know, service desk team. And so whenever, you know, something's about to go down and maybe a problem that monitoring didn't catch gasp, you know, is starting to happen. I can have my ears to the ground and be very in tune with what's happening when I'm in the office. And, Uh you know, people will go for over their, you know, cubicle and be like, hey, what about X or what about Y? You lose a bit of that remote, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, because on the one hand, there's less interrupt, which is the killer of productivity. Um, But you do lose a bit of context around what's going on. 
have any of you had projects that have been driven by work from home? So there's two things that have come up on the Packet Pushers Slack channel that I've noticed that people have said repeatedly. One, bandwidth upgrades, and two, that was to support VPN infrastructure because people were VPNing into the office. Has that been a thing for many of you? Yeah. Uh, so our VPN infrastructure was pretty solid before COVID. Um, and most of the people use the VPN that was in our office. But now that everyone's working from home, the CEO is kind of like, hey, this is working. We're going to continue working from home. We're shutting down the office. Now I have mm -hmm. to design and build a new VPN solution that's somehow tied into my network backbone, which the office is, but also no longer... Basically, I have to design two VPNs, one for engineers and one for the rest of the company, because I don't want the rest of the company being on my backbone. That would be not, not appreciated for me. So, Justin, are you losing uh, square footage to house computing equipment or you know are, are they giving up just office space but keeping like data center floor space or like you're you're having to move resources as well yes uh we so there is a server closet in the office but most of our you know computing is is in data center so we're basically just moving out of the server closet getting rid of the office and moving everything to one of our various data centers around the world you lose that home office affinity that typically happens where when you want to spin up something new, sometimes it's easier just to rack it right next door in the server closet versus going to the data center or shipping it or smart hands or all that. Yep, I have to find a new place for my lab. Hmm. Well, okay, so here's another question then. Uh, how many of you are in, uh, have some resources up in public cloud and your VPN solution now needs to deal with public cloud in some different way? You've got to think about connecting people to that in a different way. Does that uh, affect you at all or are people just connecting to those resources more or less directly? Does the client count? Is your client in the cloud? Well, no, I've got a client in that situation where they've kind of dramatically changed their VPN setup. And now it's like, oh, yeah, we need access to these cloud resources that have to go through a tunnel to the cloud. And we can't terminate on the VP on the firewall that we're using for the VPN. It's been, it's not actually technically complicated. It's just human complicated. So it's like an AWS VPC or something like that. You've got to get them resources to, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's really not technically complicated. It's just human complicated. We, we can no longer say that VPN is like second-class network citizen. Like, you, you can't do that anymore. And, you know, in the past, I think that was definitely, I don't want to say an excuse, but it's something that, you know, can be has been leaned on in the past. Is like when somebody's complaining that, oh, I can't do XYZ if I'm not on VPN or, you know, I have to be on VPN for this or it works better in the network. You know, we could always just kind of say, well, yeah, you're working remote on VPN, like, it's not going to be the same as in the office. Well, that's changed quite a bit. Now, it hasn't really affected us too much, but it is a bit of a change of mindset, I suppose. The same thing happened with Wi-Fi. Up until a certain point, Wi-Fi was a nice gimmick to have. Mm -hmm. It was thing, things you could use, but if it went wrong, you'd be like, it's Wi-Fi, it's not reliable. And then at some point, quite a long, long time ago, it became critical and has to work all the time. Um, that suddenly happened with remote working. That's an endlessly recursive story because uh, when I first started in networking, Ethernet was the cheap, low-cost networking that we just put in for the crap stuff that wasn't important. <laughs> and so forth and so on. And, you know, ISDN frame relay, blah, blah, blah. So that's an endlessly recursive story. That's a, that is the evolutionary cycle. Yeah, one thing I'm or I know that me and the security team are going to push for is the zero trust stuff. So even though to kind of get around the problem of VPNs being important. So they're, they're still being important for at least engineers, you know, talking to IDRAX and all that kind of stuff. But for the rest of the company, we want to move towards zero trust so they don't need VPNs. Yeah, we've, so, we've definitely been looking into that as well to re both reduce VPN load and also, you know, it's a lot easier to control access because you're doing it on a per user basis versus a per network basis on VPN. And you can you guys are talking about needing to get into endpoint management, though. So you've got people that are working from home. Are they all working on some horribly constrained corporate-issued laptop with, you know, a, the, the very yes. special image? Or are they just working from whatever? Corporate laptops for us, 100%. Yeah. So you need to move away from that, that requirement. You need the endpoint yeah. to not matter. You secure yeah. it by, by the application. That's, yeah, that's got to happen. That's got to happen. If, if we're going to have... 50% of people working from home and never coming to the office. I think that whole laptop, desktop, smartphone thing has to go through a transformation. Like the future of digital transformation is not is actually using somebody else's computers, not just 
in the cloud, but in the home for the employees. The employees are going to be. I think I wrote an article recently where I sort of put a starting thoughts on this. Where I called it, "You live at work now. You don't, you know, go to work to do the work. You now live at work, and you're going to have to bring some of the things that work that an office does. You're going to have to bring home." Now, there's a trade-off here, of course, because you save, it seems to me, that you save a lot of money not going to work. Like I'm now, uh, you know, saving a lot of money in clothing by not going to work. No petrol, no car, no no food, no snacks, no coffees, no beers after work. I still wish you'd no shower, fun. though, man. you got to shower. Yeah. Just, come on. Ink hey. over Zoom. That's impressive. I mean, you know, so so maybe there's a case to be made that you could spend a little on you know building a nice little office you know spend on a nice chair and a little a good microphone and maybe it's a quid pro quo but i think for employers the logical extension here is uh, unless you're a specific type of organization that needs to do some sort of structural you know um encryption of the device at rest maybe you need a technology where you know i i think the default trend will be that people buy their own computers to access company resources and when they leave they just get their zero trust just cuts them out is that unfeasible over that's not going to happen today but over three to five years is that un, is that unreasonable it all I, comes down like ollie was saying to the applications you support if your applications work well in zero trust then yeah that's definitely feasible but if you are running oh i don't know for example oracle ebs you know erp <laughs> Well, guess what? It does not work well with a Cloudflare access, Google Beyond Corp. You know, there's a lot of things that require a traditional VPN still. And so if your application can't support uh, a zero trust concept, then, well, you know, you're stuck with that. And it's really just shuffling around the effort of, well, what's more effort slash cost? Issuing computers and managed devices to employees or refactoring applications? And you just got to balance that. The piper is getting paid somewhere, but... You just got to balance that. Vendors will gladly sell you their cloud versions, though. So the Office 365, et cetera, solves it for that particular application. You just have to count on all of your applications being that way. I think in the midterm, it will be like a mixed solution of zero trust, where it is feasible in a cloud offering, and maybe something like the good old SSL VPN solution with some web portal slapped in front of it for some resources you can't get to otherwise. Yeah. So one one idea that's always um, been attractive to me is, so we already have this concept with MDM, um, where you know employee owns their personal cell phone, but it's MDM enrolled. So that when they leave the company, the administrator can delete just the portion of data on that phone that's company owned. I've always wondered if there's some way we can do that with laptops hmm. or you know desktops or whatever on the on the computing side. So the employee you know enrolls their laptop and they you know, work. Then when they leave the company, the administrator can make sure to delete just the company data, but not touch the personal data. I think we're getting to that. That's BYOD in a nutshell, because schools do that, for example, with like Chromebooks, which is very easy, of course, in that context of a Chromebook. But I think we're definitely getting there. I don't want a Chromebook. I want to bring my Mac and just access the things I need to access, which I can probably do over either remote desktop or a web session. And 95% of the time, that's going to be good enough. And then I want them to leave me alone. You know, that's the world that I that I want. I, every time I've been handed a corporate-issued laptop, it's this almost useless, horribly crippled thing because it's got 15 virus scanners and malware detectors on it that turns the thing into a brick that I've got to go and get special dispensations to even run the tooling I need to run so I can do my friggin' job. Um, and I would hope that work from home would just kind of be another step in that direction where, yeah, just use the compute thing, then we're going to – you know. I know what we were saying. Zero trust maybe is the answer to all of this, but uh, if certain apps don't run well in a zero trust model, then then you've got a problem. Nash, I, I think I cut you off. I saw you came off mute and were about to say words. Um, no, I was just going to make a joke about VDI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What one it, that it had already like been made? You, you <laughs> said that like you've been a big yeah. fan of VDI. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Don't we call that virtual desktop now? Or virtual PC or PC over IP. That is that buzzword gone out of service. I don't know. I work with a bunch of folks who are rather old school. Um, 
rather old school. And they are big old fans of it and plan on implementing it very soon. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is actually a good solution, though, I, I do think, for if you want to move to a zero trust and you need that middle land, but maybe you don't want to issue laptops to the people who live in the middle land, you, you can get away with VDI. Um, mm. I don't know if Cloudflare has this yet with Cloudflare Access, but, you know, the ability to basically do VDI through an authenticated web session would probably satiate a lot of end users for that need. Yeah. Do you guys actually believe that the lockdown corporate issued machine is saving us from the, the evils of malware? Cause I've kind of no. like, I don't know. So right. No, I don't No, I think it's just eating about two and a quarter of my eight gigabits gigabytes of Ram for the lovely shiny new, um, try not to name check it here, but thing that I hate hmm. again, that is a quarter or more of my RAM just for the their security product that you're not even using it. Yeah. It's now it's, <sighs> yes. it's the, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM adage though. It's like, are you going to be the person who puts their neck out and says, no, it's not actually more secure in an organization and be like, yeah, let's just run it on, you know, a user's computer when depending on your user base. But I don't think that you can hand over access to absolutely everything to any endpoint because I, you know, I work in mining, so I've seen a lot of messed up machines. And now I think part of that is, you know, maybe having some sort of AV solution that is enforced before you can access data or something. I don't know. But I I still am not 100% comfortable with just handing it over to any device just because end users are the weak point. And if they have administrative control, you better be very sure that your applications are secure. Well, I don't know that we've solved anything in this podcast episode, but we certainly had fun talking about it. Well, we've come up on an hour, and I think what we should do here to close the show out, go around the table one more time and uh, tell folks where they can follow you on the internet. If you've got something new you want to plug, maybe you wrote a book or you invented a new routing protocol. I don't know. Whatever the thing is you want to talk about, tell the folks about that. And uh, and I'm, I'm looking at Hollywood Squares on my Zoom here, folks that are listening, and I'm starting in the upper left of my Hollywood Square Zoom, which is Chris Cummings. Chris, tell the people where they can follow you. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at CrankyNetman. I have a criminally neglected blog, uh, slash 64.tech. Um, I guess a fun project I've been neglecting, as with most things, uh, is BGP FTP, which is BGP File Transfer Protocol. So we were talking before how... The only thing you need to know is BGP these days. So I've been working on building a file transfer protocol that runs uh, over BGP because why not? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why not. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> we should talk about that. That sounds point. horrible. Tell, tell the vendors. I don't know. They may disagree. They're like, we love this. <laughs> there's plenty of there's plenty of people oh doing database gosh. sync over BGP. Oh. I mean, that's fundamentally what eVPN is. You're synchronizing two router databases. With oh, or, or all the IGPs. I mean, it's a distributed database. Mm-hmm. Oh. Sure, yeah. Chris, thank you for joining us. Great fun. I think this is your first time on ever a Packet Pushers heavy networking episode. Uh, delight to have you. Uh, so moving on next to Toby. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, net underscore Toby. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. And I have a fancy new blog up uh, where I want to put that posting I mentioned sometime in the near future. That's uh, frequencyshifter.tech. Yeah, frequencyshifter.tech. Okay, yeah. got it. Excellent. Uh, Justin? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zenith. That's with an X, X-E-N-I-T-H. And on LinkedIn, I don't. I no longer maintain a blog. Uh, kind of got too busy to maintain that. Um, those are the stop, best two places to find me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. Ollie? I skipped over the phase of having a blog to not having a blog, so I'm, I'm ahead of you there. Well done. Um, yeah, so I'm mainly active on Slack, so the Packet Pushes Slack or the Network to Code mainly. Um, and my handle on there was a perhaps ill-advised badger poo. Uh, so yes, it's, it's professional sounding. It's how I've got where I am today. And I also have a, a Twitter handle, which is Ollie Ellie, but I don't really post much on it. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Badger Poo. I, I can't say that with a straight face. That's hilarious. Okay, Nash. You can usually find me on Packet Pushers or Network to Code um, as Nash. If it's an if someone's a network engineer and they're female and they're named Nash, it's me. Or on Twitter at Gamma Capricorni. 
And if y'all need help making the Meraki Client VPN not suck on Windows 10, I can do it for you. Chris is (laughs) laughing at me, but I'm one of the best, like, three people in the world at making this darn thing work, okay? Ash always about knows a Mac? all of the answers for Meraki. Um, yes, I have pro tips on Macs, actually. Just hit me up. Well done. Thanks to all of you for joining us. This is a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. Of course, uh, you heard Greg Farrow's voice. He's at Ethereal Mind on Twitter. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. And this has been Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. You can find this in many more of our fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all packetpushers.net. we got a subscribe page there if you want to see the other uh, podcasts that we have to offer. In addition to Heavy Networking, we also have the Slack channel that we've mentioned. You can find that uh, there at packetpushers.net as well. We're on Twitter at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn if that's something your employer lets you get to. And uh, hey, rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.